to the Sports Technology Podcast. In this episode, we speak with Alan Nathan, Professor Emeritus of Physics at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. In addition to nuclear physics, Alan has also spent a lot of time researching the physics of different aspects of baseball. He tells us about how he got involved with the science and the sport, as well as some of his favorite studies and findings. For more information, check out our website, sportstechnologypodcast.com, and remember to follow us on Twitter at SportsTechPod. Enjoy! Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Sports Technology Podcast. My name is Mike, and with me again is Henry. Hello. And today our special guest is Alan Nathan. He's a physics professor at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and he's going to talk to us about a lot of his interesting work in the area of physics of baseball. So, Alan, welcome to the podcast. And uh, do you want to just start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your work? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, yes, I've been... Uh, uh, I'm a physics professor, as as Mike said. Uh, I've actu- I'm actually re- officially retired. I've been retired from the university for four years now, uh, and I devote m- most of my time these days to the my research in the physics of baseball. Back uh, in my previous existence, I was a uh, an experimental nuclear and elementary particle physicist doing accelerator-based experiments. I spent a whole career doing that. It was a very enjoyable thing to do. Uh, and I still sort of have my fingers in that, that uh, a little bit now, but not really a great deal. As I said, mostly I spend my time in the physics of baseball. So uh, I got started on this back, it's been nearly 15 years ago now, when I was uh, asked by my department to give an outreach talk. It's a program that we have here in our department where we each take turns giving talks, particularly aimed at high school uh, science students, about our research. And I decided that rather than talk about my research, I would talk instead about the physics of baseball. And the reason why is that there is this by now famous book called The Physics of Baseball by Bob Adair, who's a uh, retired elementary particle physicist from Yale. Uh, I had had that book on my bookshelf for you know seven or eight years, and really had never cracked the spine on it. And I thought, you know, I really ought to read this book because I'm a big baseball fan. I ought to learn something about the subject. So I'll agree to give a talk on it, and that'll force me to read it. So that's that's what I did, and it would have been basically a one-shot deal, never to be returned to again, except that there was a local reporter in the audience who interviewed me after my talk and wrote it up in the Sunday paper, first page above the fold, big headlines, which is almost embarrassing to me. But that, then people started calling me up. You know, can you come and give a talk to the Rotary Club? Can you talk to the Alumni Association? And that sort of went on for about another year. And at that point, I had a sabbatical coming up, and I decided, you know, I've been – talking about this subject, mostly about what's in Adair's book for a year or so now, maybe I ought to start doing some real research myself. And so I found a topic that particularly interested me, the physics of the baseball bat collision. And it was the reason why it particularly interested me was because of my background in doing collision experiments in nuclear physics. Uh, You know, one collision is all, you know, like pretty much like any other collision from the point of view of basic physics. So that particularly appealed to me. So I, I spent you know, a considerable time working on this project. I developed a dynamical model for the ball-bat collision, taking into account the energy losses in the ball, taking into account the 
the vibrational modes of the bat, and in the end uh, wrote uh, what I would have to say is probably one of the best papers I've ever written uh, in all of my career in physics. And once again, it would have been a one-shot deal, except that uh, once people realize you know a little bit about bats, then they really come knocking on your door. And from there, it's, it's grown. So um, this, this is kind of, it's kind of a fun story. I wasn't expecting that. So you kind of ended up in it almost, almost on accident. Okay, Very much You're so. thanking that reporter now. <laughs> yes, absolutely. When you, when you started to get involved with, with baseball, were you, were you kind of, were you leaning on, on more of your, your physics knowledge or your, or your baseball knowledge just to kind of, I don't know, drive the questions, I suppose? I think I was really leaning more on my physics knowledge. Uh, you know, the, the kind of thing that I was trying to understand sort of in its essence was how do you define the sweet spot of a bat? What, what exactly do you mean by the sweet spot of a bat? So everyone has an intuitive idea about what that means. And it's, you know, basically it's where you want to have the ball and bat make contact that will, and then various definitions differ on this, but uh, that feels best in your hands, that gives rise to the highest batted ball speed, various things like that. So I wanted to try to come up with a better definition of what you mean by that. And to do that required really setting up a dynamical model in the sense that you can't treat a bat as a rigid body. You know, from a, you know, from a baseball player's point of view, you look at a bat, you know, a wooden bat, it looks pretty rigid, right? You try to bend it with your hands, you can't easily bend it. But when you look at it on a microscopic level, it's, it's not rigid at all. And in fact, even ball players know that it's not rigid, except they don't realize that they know it. You know, if you don't hit the ball in the sweet spot, the bat vibrates and it stings. And it stings because it's vibrating, it's vibrating in your hands. And that's a, a, a manifestation of the non-rigid nature of, uh, of the bat. So to solve the problem of finding the vibrational modes of a bat is, you know, right up the alley of a physicist. It's a, it's a so-called normal modes problem, many degrees of freedom problem, however you want to say it, uh, where you need some, you know, fairly powerful mathematical techniques in order to, to, to solve it. You know, it's partial differential equations, basically. Uh, right. So, you know, it's something that's tailor-made for someone you know, like me. But once I ended up solving that problem, then the interest really did shift because once you then have a good understanding of how the bat works and what, you know, how that ball-bat collision works, there are actually quite a number of rather practical questions that come up. So, so once I had finished that part of the work, then my interest started to shift I don't want to say away from physics, but much more closer to the actual baseball side of it. So would you say that in the when, beginning you you tried to, I guess, look at the problems just for the sake of finding a solution, just, just out of interest, and then after you kind of figured out that you could understand it, you made a, a shift to more practical applications? Is that what you're... Basically, that's it. Uh, it. There's a little bit more to the story that I've sort of left out. There, it, it, as it turns out, the particular problem of the dynamics of the ball-bat collision, someone else prior to me had written a paper about it. 
And uh, the, my, so the first thing I did was I picked up that paper, I read it, I tried to follow through all the details of it, which I did up to a certain point. And there was something uh, at that point that I really felt that I couldn't follow and I really felt in my gut simply wasn't right. And as it turns out, it wasn't right. So I essentially redid the problem again from the start, doing it my own way, and did it what I think is the correct way. And that's sort of how, for that particular project, how that initially got started. It was really trying to correct what I felt was something that was done incorrectly by somebody else. Um, and, but, but as I said, once you've got a model for that ball bat collision, it allows you to do a computational study of interesting aspects of the ball bat collision for which it's actually much more difficult to do the experiment. So you could study aspects, once you know that you've got a reliable model for the collision, you could study aspects that are much more difficult uh, to study experimentally. Simply because the collision is a high-speed collision, the collision takes place at a very rapid time, it's, it's just easier to do the computational experiment than the actual real experiment. Of course, ideally, what you want to do is both and confirm that they agree with each other. And such experiments have been done, and right. basically they, they agree with the computations. Right. Is there something that kind of particularly stood out? In, like, once you had this model, like, was there something like su anything surprising, like... Not that's kind of net wasn't intuitive when you kind of first approached a problem on the collision. Like, um, I, I can't get, think of an example, but was there something like just kind of surprising that stood out to you? Yes. <laughs> right. This this would be called a softball question. Indeed, there was, and in in fact, there's a very interesting story to tell. So let me let me tell it. Uh, one of the things that becomes quite apparent when you start doing these calculations is that the, since the collision time is very, very fast between the ball and the bat, something like a thousandth of a second, a millisecond, that uh, the batter's grip on the bat during that small time when the bat and ball are in contact with each other, the batter's grip on the bat simply does not matter for what happens in the collision. And the basic physics underlying that is that when the ball hits the bat somewhere in the barrel of the bat, far away from where the hands are, a little, you know, the, uh, the, the bat actually locally bends right at that impact location. And that, little, that sets up a little wave that, that propagates down the bat, bounces off the hands and the end of the bat, and then goes back towards the impact region. And the, the time it takes that wave to get down to the end of the bat and back again to where it might influence what happens to the ball, that time is about twice as long as it takes for the ball back collision itself. So by the time that reflected wave gets back to the impact region, the ball has already left the bat. And when you think about it in that, those terms, that means that nothing on the handle end of the bat could possibly matter as far as what happens to the ball. That means the, you know, the diameter of the handle, the knob, 
the grip of the batter's hands, how tightly he's gripping, he could be even not gripping the bat at all. And it wouldn't even matter for what happens to the ball. Now, the reason why, and, and this is something that immediately pops out of the calculation, and in talks that I've given on this subject, I always like to say that the batter could just as well let go of the bat just prior to making contact with the ball, and it won't make a bit of difference to what happens to the ball. And that's sort of where things stood up until last year on Memorial Day weekend when Todd Frazier, who plays for the Cincinnati Reds, hit a home run and his hands were not even on the bat. It's an amazing video when you watch it. I have it posted on my website. He, when the ball makes contact with the bat, his, the bat is basically slipping out of his hands. The top hand, his right hand is totally off the bat, and his left hand is very, very loosely coupled to the bat. And the bat goes flying out of his hands, and the ball travels you know, something like 360 feet for a home run, providing dramatic confirmation of you know, what the calculations told us must be the case anyway. So it's very non-intuitive. I think uh, when I have tried to explain this whole thing, when I explain it to physicists and I tell them the physics involved, they get it immediately. When I try to explain it to people who don't have a technical background, it, it, it requires a lot of discussion before they finally agree that, yeah, that sounds like it must be right. That's interesting. So it, it also kind of emphasizes the importance on setting up your swing properly because once you're, once the bat's in motion, it's almost too late to do anything about it. If, uh, yeah. In some, in some sense, the batter's job is to get the bat in the right place at the right time with as high a speed as possible because that is what matters as far as the collision is concerned. Uh, and then uh, w once his job is done, as I said, he might as well just let go of the bat. It doesn't, nothing he does at that point matters. Yeah. So, um, have have there been any any other discoveries in in your bat ball collisions or any other aspects of your research that you found apply to other fields? Uh, pardon the pun, but other other fields, industries, or disciplines? Or has has, uh, has thinking about baseball kind of made you think about some aspects of physics differently? Or you know, has has it kind of gone yeah, the other a, way? Yeah, that's an well? interesting. Yeah, I, I would say it's mostly the other way. Uh, I, I, but quite frankly, I haven't thought much about your question before. Uh, mm -hmm. In other words, so, uh, you know, there, there, there are two separate questions. What can physics teach us about baseball? But then you could ask the question, what could baseball teach us about physics? Right. Thus far, I've concentrated more on the former question, not so much on the latter question. It's an interesting question. And, uh, I'll give you a I'll give you a partial answer, but it's not a it's not a definitive answer. Uh, one of the things that I've spent a lot of time on in the past uh, year or so is studying the knuckleball, and uh, and more so the, the knuckleball being sort of one example of of, of different kinds of pitches that you can throw. Uh, in, in some sense, you could argue that studying the aerodynamics of a baseball uh, is likely to provide interesting information uh, on the physics side of things. Uh, people probably don't fully realize 
that it is not possible to calculate the trajectory of a baseball going through the air, spinning and going through the air from first principles. It's, it's simply not possible to do it. There are elaborate fluid dynamic codes that, that try to do such things, but no one has yet succeeded in doing that. And so the way that one characterizes the trajectories of baseballs is sort of semi-empirically. Uh, you've got the air resistance, you've got the so-called Magnus force on a spinning baseball, and those are parameterized in a simple way with unknown coefficients. Coefficients that in principle could be calculated from the fundamental equations of fluid dynamics, but thus far it's much too complicated a problem uh, to be able to actually solve. And so people treat it empirically. You, you simply try to measure these coefficients and then use that in your, in your model. And ultimately, one would like to be able to not only measure the coefficients, but then calculate them and show that, uh, that the, the fundamental equations are consistent with them. So that is one possible way one could use baseball to teach us something about physics. Mm-hmm. I guess, specifically, I guess in the- specifically aerodynamics. Yeah, I guess in a maybe. I guess it's it's almost it's almost kind of like what you're what you were saying about some of your talks. If you're trying to explain some physical principles to people through um, through descriptions of what happens during a baseball impact, and that's yeah. That's, so I, I mean, uh, oftentimes when I give a talk, I uh, use baseball to demonstrate principles of physics. So, for example, if you were to look with high-speed video of a batter making contact with a ball, one of the things you would note immediately is that after making contact with the ball, the bat speed slows down considerably. That's a principle of physics. That's basically momentum conservation. The bat has transferred momentum to the ball by turning it around and sending it out the other way, and therefore the ball has to transfer an equal and opposite amount of momentum to the bat, which slows the bat down. And that's a, that's a fundamental principle that's very nicely demonstrated when you look at slow motion videos like that. Another kind of thing that I try to use when I give talks about this is to show the role that friction plays during the ball-bat collision. So when the surface of the ball and the bat meet, if, the, if there is a component of the velocity of the, of the relative ball-bat speed that's along the surfaces, that the ball literally is sliding along the surface, uh, and, which means there must be friction that's trying to resist that slide. And it's the friction, it's that frictional force that uh, results in a torque that sets the ball spinning. So the way that a batter puts spin on a batted ball is through that frictional force. And you could, again, you can look at high-speed videos of the ball-bat collision and see that happen. Uh, and there, there are some very dramatic uh, images that I have uh, of that whole process, which is kind of neat. This physics side of things and kind of with the advent of kind of these high-speed videos that cameras that Fox is using now and some of the kind of the tracking or kind of digital tracking they put on the on the overlays with the the players and the pitches, it's, it's really interesting to kind of see that physics and kind of the science and technical side of things kind of coming into the the conversation in during a game. So it, it kind of it allows the the average fan, if you will, to kind of get a different insight into kind of what's happening on the field of play. Yeah, I think I think I think it it really does add, as you say, for the average fan. Uh, 
it, it, it provides additional information that, uh, you know, gives them a, an appreciation of, 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 of the game. I, I, I'm always fond, again, when I give talks, of, tr- of, of pointing out things that you see, sort of everyday occurrences that, that you see dur- during the game itself that you could easily explain with, with, with the, you know, ba- essentially basic physics, the, the ideas of friction and conservation of momentum and things like that. I, I'll give you just a couple of examples. Uh, one example is that when you see a, a, a baseball, a fly ball, or especially a line drive hit, uh, 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 say, to the left side, it almost always curves towards the foul pole. And it doesn't matter whether it's, from a right-handed hitter or a left-handed hitter. From a right-handed hitter, it would be a hook. From a left-handed hitter, it would be a slice. But it always curves towards the foul pole. And that, when you sort of work through a model for the collision uh, and look at, the, at how the frictional forces, the direction that those forces act, it immediately pops out that that's what you expect to have happen. Another example is that when a batter uh, hits a towering pop-up to the infield it's it's a very common sight to see the infielder sort of settling under the ball and then at the very last minute take a few steps backwards in order to catch it and the reason for that is that balls that are hit you know almost straight up in the air have a tremendous amount of backspin on them and the backspin results in a force that uh as the ball is falling, tends to take the ball away from the batter, away from home plate. So the, 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 uh, the infielder settles under it and then realizes the ball is still moving backwards and he has to take a few quick steps backwards in order to catch it. It's a very, very common thing to see uh, in, in Major League Baseball. That's uh, interesting. And, you know, you could... Oh, sorry, go ahead. But I'm, I'm saying there's all sorts of things like that that you could that, that you can you know look at in the course of a game uh, and you know try to make sense of and it, it's kind of fun to do that and it's it's it and it's it's particularly fun when you see something happen you say yeah I think I really understand why it is doing what it's doing that's uh, that's interesting I never really thought about it like that the um the backspin and uh, the Magnus force on that one is falling back, but it makes perfect sense. That's cool. <laughs> um, yep. So in, in addition to the, the contact work and the aerodynamics and knuckleballs and, uh, and all the work that you've done so far, is there another area that you think needs more attention or kind of a, a next project that you're hoping to focus on? Is there another specific thing that you'd like to figure out or solve? Or I, I tend to be so focused on what I'm doing that I sort of lose sight of the big picture sometimes. <laughs> I'm actually still playing around with with trying to study the aerodynamics of a baseball. So I, 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 I really these days tend to be very highly focused on that. And w- one, of the, one of the things that I actually wrote an article about fairly recently and I and I and I'm interested in pursuing further uh, is again it's a very practical problem it's a problem that people ask me about from time to time and the problem is this suppose a batter hits a baseball and suppose 
suppose I tell you what the speed of the ball, well, suppose I tell you the initial velocity vector, both the speed and the direction. Is that enough to determine where that ball will end up? So, uh, for here's... example, if a, batter, if a batter is in a batting cage and you have some portable radar system that allows you to measure the initial velocity vector of the ball coming off the bat, but the ball, the ball is confined to the batting cage, so you don't, you can't, it's not going to go anywhere. It's going to hit the screen. But you'd like to be able to say, all right, that ball would have been a 350-foot fly ball. All right, the question is, is that really true? Can you, can you determine where the ball is going to end up based on its initial, velocity, its initial position and velocity vector? And the answer is a resounding no. The answer would be yes if you played baseball in a vacuum. If, if it were only acting under the influence of gravity, the answer for sure is yes. I mean, that's a problem you solve in the second week of an introductory physics course. But baseball is not played in a vacuum. So there's, there's the, there are the, there's the air drag or air resistance. There's the Magnus force. And these things conspire to make it rather difficult to, to be able to tell where, you know, say a long fly ball is going to end up within maybe, you know, plus or minus 20, 25 feet, which is a huge amount. And, and, and that's an empirical result. That's a, that's a result that comes from actual data. You can simply look at tracking data. There are, radar systems set up in ballparks these days that allow you to track fly balls. You can look at that data and determine that pretty much immediately. And the question is, why is that the case? Why is it, what is it that's varying that, uh, that you're not measuring besides the initial velocity vector that leads to you know, the, the fate of the ball being, you know, rather different for different given, uh, given the same initial conditions. And that's not a, question that I have a satisfactory answer to yet. Is it variations in the drag on the baseball? Is it due to simply variations in the amount that the ball is spinning and the axis about which it's spinning? Uh, is it variations in atmospheric effects, air density, temperature, uh, humidity, things like that? These are all possible answers to the question, but I don't know the answer yet. And that's, that's, that is a subject of ongoing research for me. Cool. So I think uh, we'll, we'll wrap it up there. I mean, this is an awesome talk. I, think, I know I could at least talk baseball all day, so we won't take up more <laughs> of your time. But I think um, we're really looking forward to kind of seeing kind of what comes next out of, out of your research and, and even getting even more insight onto kind of understanding the game and seeing it from a different perspective. So uh, when we um, post the the podcast will add a link to your website so our listeners oh, can, ch yeah. can check out um, some of yeah, the images cool and, and videos, videos that, well. that you referenced uh, during, the, yeah. during the podcast. Very good, yeah. So. Well, I enjoyed talking with you guys. It's, it's been fun. And that is the episode. Thank you, Alan. Thanks, listeners, for listening. We'll put those links on our website, sportstechnologypodcast.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at SportsTechPod. Thanks. Bye.